0: Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Women in Confidence. Lovely to have you here and thanks for joining me today. My guest today, I think episode 66, is Sheko Fatso Ndabani. And Sheiko Fatso is joining us from Johannesburg in South Africa, which is amazing, and I'm incredibly grateful that she's joined us. So Sheiko Faso is a writer, a storyteller, which I'm really intrigued to find out a little bit more, and a podcast publicist for mental health practitioners. She holds a master's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Cape Town. As a writer, she has featured in a variety of international publications, including ones that you may have heard of. So, Refinery29, Life and Time and Food52 are just some of the examples. She also has her own newsletter called Words Less Spoken, and we'll ask about that as well. She's an avid writer. An avid tea drinker, and we both have tea with us today. So, right, <laughs> and she also loves to bake, and I think there's some um, interesting things going on there as well, which I want to uh, explore with you. So, Shago Fatso, hello, and welcome to Women in
1: Confidence, and thanks for joining me. Of course, Vanessa, thank you so much for having me. Now, you're Not excited that so- we're having this conversation. <laughs> Right,
0: so my first question I always ask, and it really gets us warmed up and comfortable talking, is what does having confidence mean to you?
1: Oh, confidence for me feels like being at home in my own body. It is being at home in my own space. It is a freedom of expression. It is really just being my authentic self. Whether that authentic self is having a bad day or a good day, it's being able to hold all of those spaces, all of those emotions, and still and not, not problematize any of them, not problematize any of my experience, but see them as really all contributing to my wholeness. Yeah. You mentioned
0: about freedom of expression. And as a writer, mm. that must be incredibly important to
1: you how yeah. do you how did you get into writing out of curiosity? I had a journal from the time I was eight years old. Um, I don't remember how I got that journal i um, I don't remember who gave it to me. I just remember that i from the time one of the one of the gifts one of my things was I always had a watch. <laughs> I don't know where I got a watch from the age of five, and I always had like just sheets of paper. but when I was eight, I remember distinctly having This beautiful little journal that I kept in my room. And I just started sort of like just jotting down stories. I mean, I didn't write very well at the age of eight. Um, I was still learning how to, how to write actually. But I I just remember writing like little stories and for for things that I couldn't put into words, I would make drawings, not the best drawer even now, but I would you know draw, scribble, doodle, that sort of thing. And that kind of that kind of got me into into writing a little bit. But at the same time, the more like the better I got at at reading, I was reading so, so, so much. And I was always inspired by the stories I would kind of get lost in as a child. And that just contributed to my love for writing. So I started keeping a journal. At the age of eight, and I just, I really never stopped. Like that's that's kind of been where where it's at. When I was thirteen, I would sit and We had this subject called technology, and I hated it. I just was like, this is not my jam. <laughs> like I don't understand it. Like I don't. This is, I'm not having a good time in this class. So I would always quickly finish my work, and then sit for the rest of the class period, and just you know design my own little magazine, and like picture all sorts of like articles that I would put in there, and that sort of thing. So. I've always just had a curiosity, if nothing else, about, about what could come from, from really jotting things down and creating stories, whatever those kinds of stories are.
0: And do you still journal now? I know you write, but do you journal as well?
1: I do every morning. That's one of the first things. It's part of my morning routine. So I take a walk. And when I come back from my walk, I make a cup of tea and, and I journal for a couple of minutes. And at least I do at least one page. I hope I've not interrupted your journaling time,
0: because I know you've had a walk and I know you've no. had a tea. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> I did wake up extra early, but I'm up early all the time. I did wake up a little bit extra early, so I could I could get my morning routine in before we had this chat.
0: And when you journal, do you have a
1: methodology to it, or is it whatever comes up for you? It's really whatever comes up for me. I find that, I mean, I love the quietness of mornings, you know, and I think that's possibly also why I mostly walk in the morning. So usually when I when I walk, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that will that will come up and usually I will come back and I'll journal about something that may have come up while I was taking a walk. Sometimes it's even dreams. I know I, I journal my dreams. So if I wake up and, and I've had a dream, then I'll pause the morning walk and make sure that I write down the dream first and then I'll go for my walk afterwards. But usually it's, it's really free association, whatever comes to mind. Is, is what I'll write about. Sometimes it's stuff that I've really been thinking about for a while and just trying to process and I find that once I've put it down on the page, it helps me to process it even better. So I don't I'm not really strict in terms of having a, a methodology around how I how I journal. It's really just free flow. Do you Ooh. hold on to your
0: journals and go back to them and look at them and say, gosh, look at look at where I've come. Like
1: two years ago, this is what I was writing and look where I've yeah. come now. Mm, I do. Do you know what? I, I, so I've had several burn ceremonies. I keep my journals for about five years. Um, I mean, I usually have one journal that I keep throughout one year. So every five years I've got like a pack of five. Sometimes it's more like if, I know when I've had rougher years, like I've just journaled a lot more and I'll end up with like many more journals. But I found, I know the last burn session I had was a few years ago and I just, I had a pile of, it, of of journals and I went through each of them. I did go and read all of them and some of them were from my teens and it was, I mean, it was shocking some of the stuff that I, that I found myself writing about. It was, I was quite surprised by some of the sadness that I found in some of the journals, but also there was also a lot of, you know, laughter and, and memories that I had really forgotten. But I find that when I have journals that kind of hold on to or are are really centered around more painful experiences or painful memories. It always feels so cathartic to once the, the 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 experience feels a little bit more metabolized has for me to just kind of burn the I'd make a ceremony of burning the ceremony. It's kind of like okay, this happened. I honor the experience. I honor how the journal held me through that experience, but burning them almost feels like a an act of transmutation a little bit, like just the final act of metabolizing the experience so I mean I do that every couple of years it's usually about every five years I don't always stick to the five years but I I do like to every now and again go back and burn the ones that I feel like need to be burned and keep the ones that I feel like need to be kept.
0: Having read those journals then of your teenage self what would you tell yourself Mm. now if you could
1: go and speak to you know 13 year old self what would you say? I would tell her that Ah, this is such a good question. I would tell her that she is going to be okay. I would tell her that it's okay to have so many big feelings, that there is nothing wrong with being such a feeler, feeling things so deeply, feeling other people's feelings so deeply. I would tell her that really, like, she, you know, to trust her gut, that she actually knows what to do a lot more often than she thinks she does I know that was a big thing a lot of self-doubt and I know it's a bit of just a teenage experience but there was something about I think there were moments where you know my gut was was right about a few things and I just didn't know to trust that so I would really tell her to just keep trusting her gut to trust that what comes up for her is there is a lot of truth to it even if it doesn't seem like that um, and that she's really she's gonna be fine and, and it will all it will all come full circle even if it doesn't make sense right now and that she will she will live a really good, a really happy, a really fulfilled life over the next coming years. So you said That's such a good question. Thank you, for that <laughs> I love that. So oh, thank you,
0: thank you. You said about a happy and fulfilled life. Is that how you see your life now? You are happy and you're fulfilled.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'm 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 the happiest and most fulfilled that I've been um, in my whole life. I struggled with depression for a really long time. I think some of my first episodes started in my teen years. Actually, I just didn't know that that's what was happening, and I don't think my family knew that that's what was happening. So again, I, I you know I was I was a really big feeler. I still am, um, but I look back on moments. I remember I did this exercise with my therapist a couple of years ago, where I distinctly. She helped me to kind of track the, the various episodes that I'd had. And I think at the time I was I was in my mid-20s and we counted up about 15 depressive episodes at different times. So it was quite a long it was quite a long history um of depression that had just never been diagnosed. And it was at that point that I got my first diagnosis and actually started actively treating treating the depression. So I had lived with this for such a long time, not knowing that that's, that that's what it was. Because at some point I kind of, I decided I was just like, maybe I'm just a sad person, you know? Like maybe that's just, that's just who I am. That's just part of my makeup. And even though there were moments of joy and, 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 and happiness that were peppered across my life, it was just, when I think about a lot of it, there was just so many moments where it was just the sadness was just so... So, so deep and so severe. When I finally had that conversation with my therapist, it was really helpful because I was like, okay, this is not just me. It's not just a part of my personality. There was something else that was going on. And because I have, I have treated the depression. I mean, I then went on to experience a little bit of burnout and all of that. But I think treating the depression was like kind of the first step in terms of just getting out of the darkness a little bit and starting to, you know, a lot of people will speak who've experienced depression will speak about coming out of an episode and it feels like the sun starts shining again. And I'll say for me, like it's the, after all of those episodes, I think I'm going on my fourth year where it felt, where it feels like the sun has not stopped shining. I just have not had a, had an episode for a while. And that's, it's amazing. I don't take it for granted at all. And so that's part of where the, when I say I'm, my, my life feels happy and fulfilled, that's part of where, that's a big part of where that comes from. It's just knowing about, you know, the stuff that I've made of and, and actively treating what needs to be treated and, doing the work every day that's part of why I walk every day like if nothing else I'm gonna get this vitamin d every single day you know like it it contributes (laughs) yeah it really does just help me um understand about episodes so
0: I can really understand Mm. what you're meaning so you said you went through well 15 episodes you counted with your therapist how long would they last would you know they were happening and how would you then know the episode was over so
1: for me my I mean depression looks different for everyone. for me, a big part of it was always it was hypersomnia i mean i I would sleep a lot like if i could if I could help it, if I had the time and the space, I could sleep fourteen hours a day sometimes, which is not great. Also, I often had really like things that I found pleasurable or that I found fun or that I generally enjoy. I would lose complete complete enjoyment of those things I'll stop doing all the things that I love and that really that that really nourished me so that those are kind of the two markers of the two big markers at least of me being going through episodes so some of them I mean it would be a couple of weeks but I remember a few that that really lasted a couple of months and and almost feels like it would be a couple of months and then it would be a, like it would get better for a, a few weeks or a few months and then roll onto the next one. And that would carry on again for a couple of months, a little bit of a break, a little bit of a repeat and then roll to the next couple of months. So at some point, really, they were just, they were getting more and more extended. It wasn't just a couple of weeks. It was turning into months at a time to points where I think in my early twenties, I could, I mean, I know that they they did lift at certain points, but it really felt like I went through just a couple of years of just of just being depressed all the time. Uh, well, I mm. said in my introduction
0: that you're a podcast publicist for mental health practitioners. Is mm. that did yeah. you go into that
1: based on your experiences? I I definitely think I went into psychology based on my experiences. I was curious because I. When I was, how old was I? I think I was about 12. I had a bookshelf in my room and I read all the books. <laughs> so I ran out of books to read. And so I kind of went looking through my mom's bookshelf to like kind of like, well, I don't have any books to read. Like, so I'm going to see if I can find some stuff on her bookshelf. And one of the books I found was actually an introduction to psychology textbook. And I started reading it. And I mean, I didn't understand fully understand the concepts, but that's kind of where my curiosity started. I was like, Oh, there's this thing about like how our minds work and like what our brains do and and all of that. And then as I got to, I think I was about 18 making decisions about where to study and what to study. Psychology was one of the things that that popped up again. One of my teachers was actually studying psychology part time. So again, that, you know, I remembered finding that textbook and, and that experience started having conversations with her and she was just telling me a little bit about therapy and that sort of thing. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like something I could be interested in. All my friends come and tell me their problems. Like I'm the one in the family who everyone speaks to like everyone around me just like kind of feels comfortable telling me about, about their issues. So that's kind of, that's kind of where the interest got sparked. And I, I mean, I started studying and I, and I kind of ran with it until I burnt out, but right now in terms of my, my the, the work that i do around podcast publicity that's really i specifically work with mental health professionals because i mean it is what i know but also i i found that there are so many psychologists who are doing really incredible really innovative work and they're doing so much amazing research but a lot of it the nature of academia is that you know even if you're doing the most amazing research and the amazing work it's often relegated to academic journal. So it's not necessarily accessible to the everyday lay person. And we are living in quite a psychologized society. So people know the terms, people will casually label people narcissists and gaslighters or whatever. There's all sorts of words that get thrown out there um, because people have access to that language. And um, I'm noticing that a lot of the times it is used quite It's used incorrectly and it's mislabeling people. I understand it can be helpful to have language to describe our experiences, but in the same way, there's also that danger of it kind of being, you know, used in ways that are actually quite harmful. So for me, really working with mental health professionals is about kind of, let's take the work outside of, out of the scientific journals and put it on platforms where people have access to it and having a conversation with somebody who's practicing as a psychologist is <clears throat> they can adequately describe the terms and they can adequately give, they can adequately describe and give meaning to certain terms that people are using. So for me, it's just, it's really about disseminating information from actual experts in ways that are accessible to everyone. You mentioned about you
0: know, really innovative, exciting pieces of academic research that you then take yeah. and and translate in some ways to the lay person
1: mm-hmm. was a piece
0: of academic research that has really blown you away. And you thought, gosh, people need to know about this.
1: Yeah. Oh, I've been, I've been working with Dr. Candice um, and she does research on, on good sex. And she's done a, this massive study with a few of her colleagues where they were looking at, they essentially look at racial trauma or, or good sex as an avenue towards healing racial trauma so they talk about how you know for black people they've a lot of black people have you know there's all sorts of stereotypes and all sorts of labels that have been attached to certain experiences um all sorts of language that's been attached to to black people um it's quite you know harmful in a lot of ways And they say, okay, you know, like to actually in a world that tells you that you do not, that if you're a black person, you do not deserve good things or you do not deserve certain experiences, excuse me, to have access to and to enjoy good sex is actually an act of resilience and it's an act of resistance as well. So I just thought that was... That was brilliant because it's like, you know, we so often talk about racial segregation. I mean, there's so much happening in the world right now around that. I think to look at it, you know, to look at a really difficult subject that affects all of us actually from this, from the lens of good sex is just such a, such an interesting way to come at it. Mm. You know, it's just such a different, it's a different angle and it's not, I find it's also a little bit more accessible. It's like a good entryway, like to, you know to have broader conversations so i thought i thought that work was was absolutely was absolutely beautiful and i'm just like hey you know who's not willing to talk about sex <laughs> and if it's going to lead to conversations about really important important topics and important subjects and and you did your masters on the construction
0: of black female beauty and body so is there some crossover mm. or some similarities between what you're that research, was it Dr. Candice? I didn't catch the surname. And what you did for
1: your oh, masters? So that was the the constructions of black female bodies and beauties. That was my honors. Right now, oh, yeah. I'm I'm actually completing my my masters right now, and that's on black intergenerational constructions of rest among black women. So the the that previous study that I did was not. I mean, I did that a few years ago and at that time I hadn't come into contact with Dr. Candace Hogan's work. And I'm only really I've only recently come into come into contact with it now. But yeah, I think anything that has to do with bodies, you know, regardless of of race, like anything that has to do with bodies is going if it's going to be all inter interrelated, you know, whether that's looking at at rest whether it's looking at sex whether it's looking at food like whatever it is you know like and and I think we can always look at broader issues from that from that lens as long as it's you know the minute we talk about bodies like each of our bodies holds very specific meanings within society or at least different meanings are attached to them within society it's quite unavoidable
0: yeah and when we spoke last time you were talking about the, the labeling of a black female body and how negative that has been, Uh, you know, and that's centuries. That's not just, you know, the last decade, that's centuries and how Mm. damaging that has been. Do you feel that that label has had an impact on you personally?
1: Yeah, of course. I, I was actually recently, I was writing a little bit about some of the, the stereotypical archetypes that are attached to black women. So for instance you've got the the caretaking man. This was a popular, popular image within US literature and mainstream media, I mean years ago, during slave during slavery. And other ones have been, you know, the loud talking sapphire. So she's usually she's usually quite assertive. There's also the the seductive Jezebel image that's being spread and that's usually women who are they thought to have kind of you know if they're successful? They thought to just to have slept their way to the top, or they're the women who are engaging in relationships with married men and that sort of thing. There's also the, the overachieving superwoman, um, and those are women who just they do it all. their moms have amazing careers, have amazing marriages, and really these are the women who black women are often taught to to try and emulate. This is who we should all strive, strive to be. And I think for me, I've had different experiences just, you know, just with those kinds of archetypes, I've had different experiences where I've seen myself kind of being looked at from from different lenses. I can say for the, you know, before my burnout a few years ago, I was definitely on the track to towards being the overachieving super, super woman or the strong black woman even. I mean, the thing about that was, even though I was achieving academically and I was doing amazing in, in also, you know, in every other area of my life, at the end of the day, like when I was sitting by myself, I was not well. I spoke about being depressed for such a long time. I was not well. I was not healthy, essentially. But but because people could point towards tangible things that I was doing and doing well outside of myself. Like it was more than enough, you know, like there was no, there was no need really to interrogate anything or ask anything about, about how I'm actually doing or, or about my, my health. I mean, I've also had moments where, you know, where being assertive, for instance, has kind of, you know, you know, has, has, you know, has made some experiences difficult, you know, and, and I've been labeled as kind of, you know, difficult to work with. And I mean, that was just one experience, but, but it was quite impactful because I, I, it was also a moment of kind of being like, oh, uh, I know that like I need to be saying what I'm saying and that it's important to be assertive, but it also made me like doubt my voice a little bit, which which was interesting because in a diverse group of people, if, if a black woman is being assertive and gets labeled as difficult to work with, while some of the other women in the space are being assertive and don't get the same label, like I had to kind of look around and be like, Okay, so I need to navigate the space a little bit differently it's going to be a little bit harder for me to say things and so when I I have to watch how I say things I have to mind my face you know like not have the resting bitch face when I say certain you know when I say certain things <laughs> so was, I mean I think I've come I've come up against it at, at different points and I think it's one of those things that that we all a lot of black people have to navigate in, in some ways well let's mm.
0: talk about your burnout similar question I suppose to um, when I was asking about your depression episodes is with the burnout did, were you aware of it happening or
1: did it just get to a point where there was there was just no going on oh I think it was hap- it was coming for a long time right like it was it was a few years of of things getting a little bit worse slowly but surely and I wasn't for a while, I wasn't able to identify that actually this is this is burnout. Like that's what's that's what's happening. Also, because I had struggled with depression, it was easy because because symptoms of burnout and depression can look similar. So for a while, I was like, okay, well, I've I've had I've had issues with depression, but like maybe that's what this that that's what's happening. So for a while, I kind of assumed that that that's what I was dealing with. But then I was I think it was in 2018. I was working at a hospital and. I got to a point where this is when I got really concerned. I got to a point where I was working with with clients every single day. I was doing therapy with with children and families, individual clients, adults and and that sort of thing. So I loved being in that space. I I just it was for me, it was just it was just so fulfilling to do that work. But then at the same time, I realized that I was losing my sense of empathy. So I was starting to You know, I would, I was starting to not care as much about my clients as I should have and as I wanted to. And I mean, it sounds horrible to say, but that's, that's one of the biggest markers of, of burnout, especially in helping professions. It's, it's, as soon as you kind of start your empathy, like, kind of starts flying out the window that's usually a telltale sign um there's always been so easy for me to just to express my empathy and to be in that space but I found when I was sitting I was starting to sit with clients and I was kind of like I don't really want to be here I don't mm, this is I'm getting irritated when I shouldn't be and so that for me was kind of that was the big lights that I was like okay th- this is actually this is not great, you know. I was starting to feel less and less motivated. It was getting harder to wake up in the morning to go to work. I just, you know, I, I wasn't wanting to be there. I was just waiting for the year to end because I was just feeling so done. And so at that point, I knew I was like, this is this is not this is not depression anymore. Because even though I had been depressed and, and I'd had moments where I wasn't as motivated or I didn't necessarily enjoy the things that I previously would, I always had access to my to my empathy. And so it felt like. A part of me had really just, just died essentially. I was like, I don't know what to do, like what to do without that. And I, and as long as I feel like this, like I don't think it's ethical for me to even be in the room with people, you know, like that's not like it can't, it can't work like that. So I think that was the big, the big side for me when I started to really struggle with my empathy. I thought, okay, no, there's more going on here than just, what I may have thought was an episode of depression.
0: And then how long did it take you to make the decision to step away from what you are doing? Because that's quite a big decision. Mm. You, you, you had done yeah. – your degree was in psychology and criminology. You went on then to do a master's mm. in clinical psychology. So this was sort of your pathway, wasn't it? At what point you were like, yeah. I'm not going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to
1: take a step off at the end of that year in 2018, at the end of my contract at that hospital, I remember when I thought about like moving on and continue, because I had another job waiting for me. <laughs> like, it was just like, you know. You like, you leave here and you're going to move on to the next thing. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my, with my therapist at the end of that year. And I said to her that I actually like, I cannot continue. And that was the thing that I said to her I was like, I don't think it's ethical for me to, to actually to be here. And it was hard because for a long time, it was just, this had been my career path, you know, the whole time I had never tried, you know, I'd done like a few, a few things here and there, but there were always, you know, auxiliary to, to the main thing, which was psychology. So after I had that conversation with her, I, I literally just said to her, like, I have to take a medical leave of absence. Like I don't, I can't imagine how, how I'd be able to sit in the room with anyone right now. I can't imagine how I'd be able to continue like any form of study. Like I just don't have the capacity. And she really supported it. I, honestly, a lot of times, sometimes when people ask me about, you know, making the decision, to take the pause i think that the burnout actually made the decision for me you know i i think the thing about burnout is i could easily not easily but i could usually just muscle my way through things and keep it going even though there was a lot more happening in the background but with burnout it really demanded the pause i felt like i had no choice it was like this is what's happening whether I like it or not. It's, it's, it's what I'm doing. So I, I mean, I I made all of those decisions at that time, but I was terrified because I was like, I don't know what's next. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this says about me as, you know, as someone who's, who's, who's used to starting things and finishing them, who's used to muscling my way through things and still excelling even though I was struggling. So it was kind of a, an identity crisis because I was now getting to know myself in a whole new way. And I was like, but I've been able to, to finish things before. <laughs> like, <laughs> even though I was severely depressed, I've, I've submitted a thesis two weeks after surgery. Like, why can't I just – like, gather myself and keep it going. Um, so I think Bernard really made that decision for me. It was just kind of like, well, this is, this is what's happening now. And I'm going to have to just, just stop for a second and, and take care of myself because there was, I honestly don't think there was anything I could have done to keep going. Like that, that's the point that I was at. So, sure, I made the decision to make the leave of absence, but in a lot of ways, I just, <laughs> I think the Bernard made the decision for me to stop. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that was, that was all me. Like that's how severe it was. I just, I really, really was not well. So.
0: And you said about, you questioned your sense of identity or it, it questioned. Mm. How did you then start getting back to your true
1: identity? Mm. It took me about, about two years to start feeling like myself again. Um, but I think, I think the big thing in terms of getting back after the burnout was, firstly, I really had to fully just surrender to to what was happening. For a while after I took the break, I just thought, oh, you know, it'll just be like two months and then I'll be fine. Like, I just need like three months to just kind of rest, you know, and then I'll be fine. And a month came along and I was still feeling as terrible as I was a month ago. Two months passed and I was still feeling terrible. Three months passed and I was still feeling terrible. And so eventually I was like, okay, this is actually, this is not going away. And I just have to surrender to whatever it is that's happening. Um, I don't know what any of it means, but surrendering to it was just kind of like, okay, it's where I'm at. And I have to basically start from scratch now. And so what I really did was I kind of, I thought, you know, when what are some, I started asking myself, what are some of the things that I love doing as a child? Like if, you know, what does my inner child want to do? Right now, it was the small things. You know, when I was a child, I used to spend a lot of time outside. So I started spending time outside. I started, that's when I started taking the walks. If I could go to a nature reserve to walk in the nature reserve, that's what I would do. Just being around nature and trees and, you know, forest kind of spaces, that's what I started doing. I took a lot of those walks alone. And a lot of the time I was just kind of like, I hope this one will make me feel better. (laughs) You know, maybe after this walk, I'll feel great. So I started doing that. I started baking again. I loved baking when I was a child. Um, I I didn't bake very well, but I was always curious about it. So I kind of started playing around with some recipes again. Um, I had I had stopped journaling actually before the before the burnout. Um, I wasn't journaling as much as what I used to. So I started journaling again. So it was really all these tiny practices that at the time. It, didn't feel like they were moving any needles. And I was just like, well, you know, this is what I love doing as a child. And so that's, I'll just run with it for however long it takes. I started meditating as often as I could. It was just, it was just these really tiny. And sometimes I couldn't even do those things for a long time. You know, I couldn't sit and meditate for 30 minutes. Because I, like, I can sit and meditate for five minutes. You know, I, I, I may not be able to journal three pages, but I can journal one page, you know, I may not be able to walk for an hour, but I'll walk for 15 minutes if that's what I need to do. So I really just started honing in on some of the things that my inner child really enjoyed doing long before, you know, all the bigger things came along and kind of silenced her voice a little bit. So that was, that was a, some of the really tiny, but in hindsight, like the big first steps that I took.
0: And with your family and friends, how did they react to you when you fully acknowledged the burnout? How did they react?
1: Oh, this was such a, this was such a big revelation for me because I had always, I had always been the caretaker and nurturer for everybody else. And part of that, I hadn't realized that I was doing this in my relationships, but I, I had realized, I realized that I hadn't really Because I was always the caretaker, I wasn't always confiding in the people around me. So even though i had depressive episodes and I'd had difficult periods in my life and all of that stuff, I usually actually kept those things to myself. But when the burnout happened, it forced me to start asking for help. And so this meant having really difficult conversations with, I remember having the conversation with my mom, with some of my friends and telling them, I was just like, I actually like I'm not, like, I'm not okay. Even just making that admission that I was not okay and that I need their help because I'm just, there's a lot going on and I'm burnt out. And what was surprising to me was everyone, everyone that I, I I spoke to, the first thing they said, a few of them actually, the first thing they said was like, oh my word, thank you for trusting me with this. Because, and a few, you know, a few then went on to even say like, you know, they they expressed how me telling them that I was not okay and me asking for their help actually was the first time that they were feeling like I had some use for them in my life because it was always like, you know, you've always taken care of of everyone, but now we can all finally take care of you. Like, we know that you need help, but also, like, you're telling us that you need help. Like, now we can do something. Like, and I, it really just showed me like how my relationships had been so lopsided for a long time and that people kind of, you know, some of my closest, closest people kind of felt like I was this superwoman and, and actually like they were always coming to me with their problems and maybe something was wrong with them for always being the ones in crisis because how did I always have everything together? So I found it really equalized my friendships and, and they just grew so much more intimate because finally like all these people around me, we're just kind of like, Oh my goodness. Like now we can, we can do something for you. And if anything, express our appreciation for everything that you've done, you know, by taking care of you as well. So, I mean, it was quite surprising because I remember even just like with some of my friends, as I was telling them all of this, i like, I'll try and apologize for needing their help. And they were just like, no, 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 no. Like we don't do that. Like that's like you know what I mean? i'm just like i mean sorry you're having a rough time but i'm so excited that i can help you in some way <laughs> you know so it was just i think my burnout actually healed my relationships in ways that i think they needed to be healed they've become so much more nurturing so much more reciprocal and so much more intimate because it's just you know like everyone in the relationship now is, is essentially human because i think i was just you know I was I was riding on this facade of, of of perfection for such a long time. And then the burnout took, you know, took that mask away.
0: But it sounds like you have the most gorgeous group of friends.
1: <laughs> oh, I <laughs> do. I really do. They're the love of my life. Like <laughs> you know what? A lot of my closest friends I met at university. I mean, I met some of them when I was in my undergrad in Pretoria and others in Cape Town. And now, because everyone's kind of got, like, their own careers and stuff going, like, we've all, like, spread out. So we're all in different cities, and and it's a bit of it's an effort, like, we have to actually, you know, drive to different cities to see each other and fly to different cities and countries to see each other. But I found, I mean, we still we've been so intentional about maintaining our friendships regardless of the distance. I mean, I have one friend who stays in the Netherlands and her and I will get on a video call and we'll literally just cook, you know, (laughs) it's like she'll make, (laughs) she'll cook on her one end and I'll be cooking on my end. And that's what we do. And it's just, it's not the same as the physical presence because we used to, even when she was in South Africa, we used to, she'd come over and we'd cook a meal and just sit and enjoy a meal together. But it's, it's it's definitely not the same, but We still maintain our friendship through those little acts um, that we did when we're still in the same space. I've got friends that I exchange letters with. So we'll send letters to each other through the mail. We'll have surprise deliveries like every now and again, just like to say, I'm thinking of you. So it really feels like a lot of like, you know, a lot of my friendships are quite romantic because there's just so much intention and thoughtfulness in the stuff that we do. And I think a lot of it is because we're not. In the same in the same city so we've had to be quite creative it's so
0: lovely to hear you say that you you actually still write
1: letters because <laughs> yes it's ah. so rare to hear these days <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love writing letters oh my word i wish we all still did that
0: <laughs> i was i've still got all the letters that my um, husband or was boyfriend at the time wrote to me um when yeah. we were apart and I was say telling my kids mm-hmm. oh you know I've still got daddy's letters and they're like letters who writes letters <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, it's a dying art form I think but never mind it really um, is. so would you class yourself then as, as in being post burnout I know
1: that probably doesn't exist as a, a phrase but do you think you are Yes, I, I definitely, I definitely do feel like I'm, I'm on the other side. Yeah, I think I've been on the other side now. It's, I think about two, two, almost three years now. Yeah. Oh my word. Just, it's just vastly, vastly different headspace to where I was at when I was burnt out. Um, and it happened really slowly, but, but I yeah. <laughs> definitely. What would you advise to women who
0: are listening and thinking, hang on a minute, that sounds like something I'm going through? What would you advise them to do?
1: I think the first thing is to trust it. We live in a in a world where, you know, burnout, it's not a medical diagnosis. Um, it's not a it's not even necessarily a psychiatric diagnosis. So it's not something that is often taken, it's not often taken too seriously, but it's so it's so debilitating so i think if anybody feels even suspects that they might be experiencing burnout i think it's important to trust that feeling and and trust that instinct that tells you that you might be experiencing it and then i think another another thing is to to try and find community you know like whether that's immediate support system um actually Talk about it to people that you trust, um, who would be willing to support you, people who've experienced burnout even, because there's, there's just some things that like, they, yeah, you can't, it's not something that I think you can, one can manage in isolation. I think it's a, it's a community. It should be a community based healing process. Yeah, and therapy, only therapy. I mean, I mean therapy has been really helpful for me And and often, you know, sometimes people think that therapy is just for psychiatric illnesses or mental, you know, diagnosed mental illnesses. But I think having that space where you can talk to someone who will give the adequate advice that you need, the adequate tools that you need to get through it. 'Cause my thing with Bernard is it, it doesn't just impact the person like your personal life, it impacts your career. Like there's so many other things that it impacts and I think it would be helpful to be in a safe space with someone who can advise in terms of, of what you can do with every other area. So therapy for sure, for sure. You know, if you don't have access to therapy, there's some kind of support, just some kind of support space with with a professional. 'Cause yes, family and support systems will be very helpful and friends. Um, but I think it it's also helpful to just have a, a designated safe space where you can process what's going on. Now
0: let's talk about your career as a writer. At what point did you realize that's that's the direction you wanted to take yourself?
1: I when I was starting those little steps I spoke about about, you know, reconnecting to some of the stuff that my inner child enjoyed, I remember having a dream and in the dream I I was, it was such a strange dream, but I was in my, I was waking up from my bed and on my desk, there was a piece of paper and a pen. And when I looked at the paper, I realized that I had written, I had written a letter to myself. Um, and mean, I remember in the dream, I tried to read it, but I couldn't, I couldn't make out what it said. And I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> like I woke up and I, that dream stayed with me. Like I just, I just never, it just never left me. And I was like, oh my word, did I just, like, what does this mean? Like, it's clearly a message. Um, a letter is a message. And I kinda of ran with it and I thought, you know, I've always loved writing and it's something that I I've considered, like I thought about, like I considered before I started varsity, yeah, one of the other options of, of, of study was journalism. But I ended up, you know, going going the other route obviously. I thought, well I love this and like it's it's obviously it's something I considered making a career out of. Let's see if I There's some way I could, I could learn to do that. And so, because I had no qualifications, like no networks within that space, I decided to find a mentor. I literally, there was this amazing writer, Sean Ferguson, that I found, and I just, I just popped her an email and I was like, listen, (laughs) I've read some of your stuff. I see you like, you've established this amazing career as a writer. You're writing for all these publications that I love, that I read, that I've just, you know, that I would love to eventually at some point be published in. Would you be open to exploring a mentorship relationship with me? And and fortunately, she, she was game and we had a our first conversations, just kind of see if we gel and connect, figure out what mentorship would look like. And she started mentoring me. So I started seeing her every single week. We'd have meetings and she was, you know, teaching me the ins and outs of freelance writing of some of the work that she's done she was teaching me how to pitch um where to pitch how to find editors emails all of that and so i just i started and i and i ran with it and i think it was within two two months after i started my mentorship my mentorship with her i got my first acceptance into a publication which was really exciting and once i got that first acceptance i was getting you know acceptances more and more often I eventually started working with static media that's based in the U.S. and I was writing for them I still write for them even now and then eventually got Through my mentor, I then met Alice Draper, who I work with quite closely now um, at Hustling Writers. She was, at the time, she was exclusively doing publicity, podcast publicity. So then that's how I got into that space. And soon enough, I was like, wait a minute, like, this is like, we're doing amazing work. And I'm really, really enjoying this. but I'm curious about what it would look like to do it specifically with mental health professionals. And that's kind of where I found my niche. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So it was really, I think everything really started. You know, from that dream to then finding a mentor, um, which is really helpful, really, really helpful um, to kind of just get me started and find my bearings. And it found
0: it sounds like you found an amazing one in Sean. And I
1: did. Oh. amazing,
0: amazing mentor. Yeah, and mm. it's a really powerful message about you know again reaching out for help because. Yeah. People out there will absolutely welcome you in with open arms and help you get Ooh. to what you want. So I guess that's really great advice. So where what's next for your career and your writing? Do you have a goal? So when you're looking at your journals from 2023, five years Ooh. out from here, what will you will you have achieved what you
1: want? Ah, oh, I I'm so excited. I want to I mean I'm I'm excited to keep on working with mental health professionals. I'm excited to see just how far we can take. We can take podcast publicity within that space. I I'm imagining at this point, you know, actually even consulting cuz you know, pod podcast publicity, yes, I have the skill to do it and I think I do it well, but it's also a teachable skill. So I mean, one of the big things that Alice and I have been speaking about is is about, you know, making publicity easy, you know, and and that means teaching people how to do it for themselves, too. So I'm imagining over the next couple of years just really having countless cohorts of mental professionals who are going through podcast publicity training and learning how to do it for themselves. But also, if not for themselves, teaching people on their teams how to do it so that they can can do it for themselves it's really about making it accessible um, to everyone and not being the only person who can do it who can do it and and just disseminating that information as as far as we can because what starts as podcast publicity can then become publication it can i mean can become conferences like there's all sorts of places that it can go so it's really just about teaching as many people as we can how to how to do publicity for themselves and, and to realize that it's actually it's accessible and it's easy and it's possible. It's just a skill that we learn. Get on the bicycle and once you know how to ride it, you always know how to ride it. Well I yeah. wish you all the
0: best of luck with that. And um thanks so much for being on the show and for sharing all all your mm. stories and you know those those are tough times. Depression and burnout, that that's tough, but you've been yeah. brilliant as a guest to talk about those and being so mm. honest. But also such mm. a positive role model for people who who are maybe feeling that right now um, and don't necessarily see the light at the end of the tunnel Um, it's great to hear that that, you know you can get through it
1: yes yes thank you so much Vanessa I've absolutely (laughs) adored having this conversation with you thank you so much